It is a beautiful day to be alive. I am so happy that we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. In 1990, Congress passed the American with Disabilities Act, a federal civil rights law banning discrimination against people with disabilities in many areas of life. However, despite the ADA and more precisely the work of the disability rights movement in bringing public visibility to the injustices faced by disabled folks, the law doesn't cover accessibility or inclusion in every area of life, nor does it change ableist attitudes. And because ableism is ubiquitous in our social world, we must be active in challenging our own bias. And against techno-ableism, rethinking who needs improvement, Dr. Ashley Shu dispels some of the harmful assumptions about disability, accessibility, and technology. Dr. Ashley Shu is an associate professor in science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech, where she participates in the science, technology, and society PhD program, the medicine and society minor, the disability studies minor, the bioethics graduate certificate, and integrative graduate education program on regenerative medicine. Her current research is about disabled expertise and disability-led narratives about technologies. She's working on an open educational resource on technology and disability with Hannah Hertigan, Damian Williams, and a team of undergraduate research assistants made possible through a National Science Foundation grant. Ashley's past work has been in philosophy of technology with particular interest in technological knowledge, animal studies, and emerging technologies. She is co-editor-in-chief of Techne, the Journal of the Society for Philosophy and Technology, and she is the sole author of Technological Knowledge and Animal Constructions and co-editor of three Philosophy of Technology volumes. Ashley is a grateful participant with her local disability advocacy and activist community in the Disability Alliance and Caucus at Virginia Tech and the New River Valley Disability Resource Center. Ashley joins us today. Hi, Ashley. So glad to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, I had to have you on when I saw this gorgeous book first. It is visually very beautiful with a cover, bright and colorful that definitely caught my attention. Um, But also just for me personally, I am trying to learn more about uh, disability, about ableism, about bias, and hopefully, you know, integrating what I've learned, particularly in the classroom, since I am a professor as well. And so I was delighted to see this book um, and to be able to read it. And of course, to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much. I have my iced coffee ready. Um, um, I, I, I take the name seriously. Um, and thank you for that lovely um, introduction as well. Um, I'll, I'll image describe the book for your listeners, yes, uh, which please. is to say, because um, I love the cover. Um, I am not an artist um, and everything they sent me was better than anything I could do. Um, <laughs> um, so I highly recommend the art team at Norton. Uh, but it says, it gives the title against technoableism, rethinking who needs improvement um, and has my name, but it also has um, like like a yellow background that's framed in green, and then uh, like a whole bunch of brightly colored wingdings that represent like different disability icons and items. So there's like a wheelchair lifted van. Um, there's some like eyes. There's some like cross out signs. Um, there's like a band aid on a person's like on a figure's head. There's some wheelchairs. There's prosthetic arms. There's prosthetic legs. Um, there's just a whole bunch of pills scattered all around this, um, and a prescription pill bottle at um, the end. In one corner, there's like a cochlear ear implant symbol. Um, it's a it, there's there's glasses. There's hands that are like clapping. There's crutches. There's canes. So when I say brightly colored ring things, there's a lot of it. And at the very bottom. Um, like in the middle, there's like an image of a prosthetic foot with a Tiva on it and um, two, two googly eyes googly glued eyes. to that foot. Um, and that is my foot, um, oh. which is to say I like to glue googly eyes to my body. Um, but <laughs> but because it's super fun because you can say it stares back um, mm. when you get um, staring in public. So I just I just love what the art team did. So thank you. Yes, they did an excellent job. And who doesn't love some googly eyes? Just <laughs> googly eyes. Oh. 
Yes. And I love this idea of it stares back because something that, of course, you talk about a lot in the book is how people stare, right? This idea of noticing things that are quote unquote different and a lot of intrusive conversations um, or the ways people think they have a right to know your story or a right to know what's quote unquote wrong and that you will tell them a, a story that they can understand and potentially be inspired by. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So there's sort of um, maybe two threads here and one is sort of about staring um, and how to how to manage staring if you're someone who appears differently in public. So sometimes we talk about apparent and non-apparent disabilities. And apparent, like, is to who? Um, mm -hmm. So I'm in the disability community, and I see someone with a Dexcom on their arm, and I know they're diabetic, right? I, I know their disability. I, I see it. If I see someone, like, move their hands in a particular way in excitement, I might go, that person might have autism. Um, you know, being in the disability community makes disability more apparent in particular mm -hmm. ways um, because you know people with these sorts of um, set up situations, um, you know, that might not be apparent to everybody else. Uh, mm -hmm. But there is sort of, um, you know, a lot of disabled people who are who have apparent disabilities that are apparent to lots of people um, are, are people who have to manage staring on a daily basis, right? So people mm -hmm. will ask you questions about your body that they wouldn't normally ask other people. Um, you know, you can be asked questions while you are doing mundane tasks. Um, you can be told you're inspirational just for like standing in a place for a little while that's happened to me on multiple occasions because people see a prosthetic limb and they think, oh, this is inspirational. But I wasn't mm -hmm. actually doing anything. And if they had seen me walk, they would have seen like a really like crappy gate, uh, which is fine. I'm comfortable with the gate that I have. Mm -hmm. um, but 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 that they were drawing inspiration from me just just standing like looking at a shelf mm -hmm. um, that is misplaced. Um, and it's a weird it's a weird thing to always have to manage people's stares. Um, mm -hmm. Some people outright reject it. Um, some people have funny stories they tell. Some people have tall tales um, that they will offer. I mean, the amputee community and the number of people who didn't really um, um, become an amputee through a shark bite, uh, for instance, <laughs> is actually uh, very large. Um, but, um, you know, to constantly have to narrate something about our bodies is is a particular type of intrusion. Mm -hmm. Right. Not like I don't. I don't walk up to people normally and go, hey, why do you walk the way that you do, right? Or why why do you talk funny? Um, or, or, you know, what happened um, um, to your limb or your face or, or, your, or your spine in some cases, right? These sorts mm -hmm. of questions where people want to hear about a story. And some of the stories aren't that interesting, mm -hmm. right? And some of the stories you're really, every day of someone's life, you're asking them about the worst day of their lives. Right. If we're talking about people who lost things in or who became disfigured in really traumatic ways, um, to be asked that all the time is to be asked to relive a trauma. So these sorts of questions could be really invasive, um, you know, and depending on how you arrived at being disabled, um, you know, a lot of people when they're asked this question have to say, you know, I've always been this way, right? There's there's not a story here. I have mm -hmm. a congenital disability. Um, um is also like, sometimes they feel like people are let down by that, like the sort of like social interactions mm -hmm. you end up in that are like supremely weird um, are, are so common uh, when you have a disability that's apparent to other people. Um, but in some ways that can make it easier too, mm -hmm. right? So when people see that I'm disabled, right, they'll, they'll know to give me a route that I can use uh, maybe if they, they've thought a little bit about it. Um, you know, and when I go into spaces, I'm not constantly asked to prove that I'm disabled um, because my disability is so apparent. So it is, um, you know, it's uh, it is it's not neutral, but it does affect every situation um, mm -hmm. in good and bad ways. Yeah, you have a whole chapter where you're talking about some of these common narratives or stories that we might expect or even demand from disabled people in order to affirm really our own bias about the world or really to make us feel good about whatever it is. Um, and 
as I was reading through the book, you know, what really stood out to me was, again, these demands on your story, on private personal information that we would never think to just walk, like you said, to just walk up to somebody and ask them really private personal questions that quite frankly, aren't our business um, to know and that no one should be demanded or required to talk about and talk about in a particular way. Um, And I saw a lot of those similarities in the demands for stories um, in the way that transracial adoptees um, are are seen um, visibly different and that something is wrong often. Um, And I am a transracial adoptee. So I was like, wow, like this, you know, again, these public demands for private personal details um, and the expectation that we will answer and in a particular way. Um, and of course, for folks who've been listening to the show or are familiar with some of the histories of, of family and family making um, in our country, we also know that adoption is has been seen a very negatively and stigmatized for a lot of our history. And so again, um, the past is always present in how we're observing people and what we expect um, from them. Um, one thing that you talk about throughout the book, and of course, is really the the key to the book, it's in the title, is against techno-ableism. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this idea of techno-ableism. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so people might have heard of ableism. Um, and and techno-ableism is, I would say, like a form of ableism, right? So ableism is this broad category. Um that suggests that certain ways of being in the world are better than others. So it's a system of it's like social hierarchy. Um, it's a system of value. It's a system of like who we prefer in jobs, in education, um, in every sphere of life, um, the sort of preferences um, that exist. And, and those preferences usually align with non-disabled. People mm-hmm. prefer people to be non-disabled. Uh, people prefer normality um, in a particular uh, way. And so technoableism is this, but instantiated in sort of how we talk about our technological projects, particularly for disability, uh, but even for new technologies, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in a second. I, uh, there's uh, so many engineering projects for disability are proclaimed as life changing for people. Mm-hmm. Every every new new disability related technology is supposed to change people's lives. And let me tell you, our lives are not changed with all of those moments. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the best changes are incremental, right? So everything is supposed to be life-changing. It's good. People who work on disability technology are supposed to be saintly helpers um, who are doing something like radically important for the disability community. And often those teams don't include disabled people and they don't get mm-hmm. like the story of our lives, right? They suggest that disabled is always a bad thing to be. And all of these technologies need to be there to correct for the Mm. disability and not to just like make it easier for disabled people to adapt, right? I think those are two different ways of framing um, how we might do technological projects about disability. And I'm not a lot, I've mentioned wearing a prosthetic leg at this point. I have hearing aids, I have new ones ordered. I love headphones because I can just jack up the volume right now. (laughs) Um, So no problems in the Zoom setup, but um, there, there are so, there are so many stories about technology and about disability that suggest that every disabled person is waiting for the next new thing to come save them. And if you're mm. not someone who has solutions for them already, that you're supposed to be existing in a hopeful state of like a pre-transition to being abled again. Mm. Um, and they talk about disability technology as particularly empowering to disabled people. So we're going to create this thing that normalizes disabled people in a particular way. And isn't that empowering? But it's not empowering if what you're being told is the way that you are is the wrong way to be. Mm. Right. Um, those narratives also tell you like that praise technology and that require it. And that disabled people are supposed to internalize like the push for technology because somehow our lives are unworthy as they are. Mm. Like I'm not against technologies that help me with everyday daily tasks, right? I have a million reminders on my phone as someone with chemo brain. I will not show up on time unless if things are programmed properly. Um, But like at the same time, I'm not like lamenting my life that I need to like constantly check my phone to find out what time it is, right? I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm existing, I'm using technology to help me exist, but it's not saving, it's not saving me. And yeah. it's not empowering to like suggest that I I need all of this technology to be wor- a worthy participant 
in education, in jobs, in public places. Um, so, so all of that, all the sort of joyous like reporting like falls really flat if you're a disabled person who gets constantly messaged this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes all of these presumptions about what it is we should want in ways that don't necessarily align line with the values of various disability communities, right? So rarely are these tech people saying, hey, does this particular technology fit in with the values of, of your community? No, by the time they bring in disabled people, things have been tested to a particular place and they want human subjects, participants, mm. not not advisors, um, you know, not consultants, not makers. They, they consult us way too late in the process. Um, so, so we get stories about technology. And of course we're all existing you know, I talk about ableism as the marinade that we're all hanging out and like, it's everywhere. So, so people get this message reaffirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really hard to shake loose from and even identify techno ableism in the world because it's so, so part of our technological enterprise, even when we're saying things like, uh, like chat GPT, right. So to talk about new and advanced technologies. And of course, chat GPT was not rolled out when I drafted this manuscript, <laughs> um, you know, people talking about like how wonderful this will be, um, you know, and when people suggest that maybe this is not the best thing in the world, you know, people want to tell you, well, there's there's disabled uses for it. So we have to like it. Mm-hmm. Right. And this this is, you know, this is the story of like, um, you know, this is like greenwashing, but for disabled people where, oh, well, if disabled users might want this, this gets done all the time for like automated cars, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So what don't you want blind people to be able to have the same mobility? I mean, yes, but you're asking for it in a particular like context of transportation where I would love to see a lot more public transportation and just having driverless vehicles doesn't do that. And, you know, it's the safety hazards with driverless vehicles are are like more significant for the disabled population, right? If we're talking about people who don't move in crosswalks the way, uh, you know, uh, people who have regular gates move, will I be recognized as a person becomes mm-hmm. a question to me with driverless cars. So it gets hyped up as, oh my goodness, you know, they're going to work with, um, you know, some, de- some, um, some blind institutions to, to work on this tech. And, you know, is this actually what the community wants? It needs to be a question a lot earlier. Um, and, and it's offensive to always be used as someone's service project, Mm. right? That we might want technologies that are our own, but to sell them as some sort of humanitarian aid. I mean, I don't think anyone who's developing autonomous vehicle technology, like actually cares about like disabled use. That's one use, but that's not like, that's not why they're in it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, sorry. That was a off-road um, um, to my thoughts on, on on vehicles, which I don't actually talk about in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I love to take a little off-road. So I'm all here for all, all, of, all of the off-roads that, that we can, can go on in this conversation. You know, you said something that really stuck with me. Um, you said it's not empowering to be told that the way you are, the way you're living is wrong or unworthy. And that's what all these messages that are so subtle, right? They just that are baked into our society that we learn um, from growing up and then throughout adulthood. And we, and we see emphasized, even as you mentioned in all of these, you know, grand announcements about all these tech advancements, right? They are confirming and reaffirming that there is a normal, quote unquote, normal and therefore more desirable way to be and that everyone should want to, wants to be quote unquote normal. And you know, like what, what is, what does that even mean? But yet we're, we're subscribing to it. And if we're not aware of these ableist messages, then we'll just continue to think like, oh, this is the way that it should be. And everyone should, you know, want to want, you know, this Mm -hmm. type of movement or whatever it is. And this is where I really love, um, like disabled narrative. And this is what, what I, I lean on a lot in the book. Um, you know, there are wonderful books and poetry and blogs written by disabled people. Not all of us have access to like publishing and and the bandwidth for it. Um, but but just wonderful stories that like very much counter this narrative. Um, like we talk about them, like Hannah Hertigan, who's one of my collaborators. Um, you know, we often talk about these as counter narratives. And this is mm-hmm. something that she's done a whole bunch of work on. Uh, but like to talk about like the way disabled people are talking about these things 
is actually like confronting this, but it's not the message anyone's hearing. So mm. even even when when we're doing our own storytelling, um, you know, yeah. there's this one point in this book by Harriet McBride Johnson. Um, the book is Accidents of Nature. It's about disabled kids at disabled summer camp. And uh, one of the girls is uh, flipping flipping through a scrapbook and like commenting on it and um, commenting like, wow, it looks like your parents made you waste a lot of time in physical therapy, right? Because there are like news clippings of, of uh, the protagonist like standing up um, and walking with like a team around her. And it has like praise from her physical therapist about how hardworking she is as like an eight-year-old. And the thing is they are both disabled kids at disabled summer camp talking now, and they're both wheelchair users. So they're saying, oh, you wasted a whole bunch of time. They wasted your time with that and describes and the one girl describes to the other her time in physical therapy where they kept working because she had like a leg contracture and they were working on it and working on it until it was suggested that she needed surgery to handle the leg contracture. But she doesn't walk. Mm-hmm. And she says, my parents realized that was fishy. And so now I just sleep with a pillow underneath my knee. I didn't need the surgery. I didn't need all that physical therapy. They were working on something that would be useful. Maybe if I, I walked, but I'm not gonna, like, that. Right. What, that's nothing that's ever been available to me. So there was all this time focused on normalizing with like the perception that you would be normal one day mm-hmm. um, or that you would be like a, like some sort of ideal that, that, that wasn't ever going to exist. Mm-hmm. Right. So the sort of like therapy and, and she talks about therapy as being like really, really painful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, that she had been spared because her parents wised up and then she didn't have to get the surgery. And at the time she says the surgery, the girl whose scrapbook she's looking through the, um, like covers up the scars on her leg where she had gotten that surgery. Mm-hmm. Right. So these things that mm-hmm. were forced through, cause of course, of course, um, you know, and Bill Peace in his bad pr- cripple ball, blog talks about this as a ritualized ideal that Mm -hmm. of course all disabled people want to walk again right that 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 like of course like exoskeletons are the answer but like if you actually talk to um like lots of wheelchair users i mean many people don't use them because like they're not using them for reasons of paralysis, right? So so there are lots of wheelchair users who might have like, um, you know, fainting episodes or seizures who sitting down is just better. Yeah. Um, you know, an exoskeleton, that's just means more seizures or it means like your heart rate gets elevated in particular ways um, because your body isn't at rest. Mm-hmm. Um, but in talking about this, I mean, he talks about this, this idea that the general public has that all paralyzed people share this like ideal of walking. Right. Um, and then we get these teams of engineers, these exoskeleton projects uh, where there's all these praise lay, laid upon the engineers. But if you talk to people in like the community, they say things like, oh, yeah, I, I'd really prefer that um, they do more research on bowel and bladder health. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have regular access to maintenance for my wheelchair. Right. I mean, and they never talk about what exoskeleton maintenance will mean. Like (laughs) when we know there are huge delays for wheelchair maintenance in this country. And that means people are often, you know, if that's their only device, they are stuck in bed at home, Mm -hmm. like without the device. And it can be delays of weeks to months to repair a wheelchair now. Right. And that's not, that's not even a fancy ass, um, exoskeleton, um, so there's, there's like all of these things that sort of the designers, the people who who share and laud it and, you know, hype it um, like they can't even see mm-hmm. that, you know, the users would be much more interested in um, and that that the presumption that they should be normalized at all um, is is a particular like uh, sort of bias that's just so, so deeply entrenched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, an exoskeleton, it sounds so flashy, right? Why wouldn't somebody want this? Um, whereas really making sure that we have structures in place um, to for what disabled folks actually want is not as, as sexy, right? <laughs> oh, and I, I was just thinking that like, like they want exoskeletons to be sexy, right? And the way they describe them, I mean, I love that any any video you see of an exoskeleton like has music overlaid 
and like they take out the sound of whatever uh, how much sound that suit is going to make for you uh, for the ones with different computerized devices and fans to cool off the computerized <laughs> components and like different hydraulics like all of that is cut out you just get like some jazzy music oh, about yeah. like what the future is going to be like maybe some techno in there I mean it really is presenting like a weird ideal about techno optimism, right? That yeah. we like it's it's a sales pitch, um, but but no one see like it's seen as oh this is fun good 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 science, um, but no this is this is also a sales pitch to you. And I also think like I don't actually think exoskeletons are like the worst. I think the way they've been like sold and discussed and seen as like a replacement for wheelchairs is probably incorrect. Yeah, um, you know I think like we will probably like their best use scenario is in physical therapy offices to help people who have had traumatic brain injuries and strokes mm. uh, work on recovering different like muscle function um, and work on movements that would be harder for them to do outside of nexoskeletons. There's a use for it. Mm -hmm. I never see that in a press release. I never see that with music overlaid. I never see like a senior citizen walking around like like with with the team around them um, um, in an exoskeleton. It's always like some some young person of course. Um, who is, is who's going to change their life. Um, I, I had a class at one point. Um, I had, I put, I just put up a picture of an exoskeleton on my slideshow mm -hmm. and before like we could even get to discussing anything, one of the students was like, how do you use the bathroom in that? And then we <laughs> all looked at the picture for a while. And the thing is to use the exoskeleton, a person was going to have to take off the exoskeleton, get into their wheelchair, roll, <laughs> roll into the bathroom, transfer onto the, the seat, get back in their wheelchair roll back to the exoskeleton and put the exoskeleton back on like that. I, I don't see there was going to be no way to sit on a toilet in that exoskeleton or, or get off your pants to use the restroom. Right. There's, there's just like some basic human functions, very basic human functions that like they were so focused on walking that mm. actually like, there's lots of things I can do in my day without walking. <laughs> but in fact, something I know I'm going to have to do in my day, um, they, they it was not part of the design at all. Oh, um, it's like they didn't ask someone who might use an exoskeleton. <laughs> well, and they didn't ask what will you use this for, right? right. The idea is, oh, you're going to want to walk. Here's here's the walking device. Um, and, and, you know, it's not that I'm anti that technology, but the use case is always so limited in how we see it. And, mm -hmm. and one that continues I feel like to to make disabled life seem worse or off mm -hmm. um, that then then it needs to be like once mm -hmm. you look to the exoskeleton as a fix do you care about repairing sidewalks yeah right do you care about um and there's been lots written on this um as sort of replies to this ideal of, of we'll just get exoskeletons we don't have to worry about infrastructure <laughs> but infrastructure like serves more people like curb cuts oh. are for strollers and package delivery not just disabled people um mm. and when you start to neglect all of this infrastructure it impacts everybody too yeah absolutely um, you say in the book, uh, framing disability as the problem turns attention away from the real problem. The world is set up to exclude disabled people. And I mean, I think that's such the case, even as you're just talking about like curb cutouts, right? And just things like this that everyone could could benefit from, but our world very much is only focused on a certain type of mobility, a certain type of person. Um, but as you you emphasize throughout the book, you know, the longer we live, we're going to be disabled. Like all of us will likely have some sort of disability in our life, um, but yet we act as though we can just fix them all away, that there's a solution and that they should be fixed. Yeah. And most disability research is about children or very old adults. Mm. they're like the dearth of research on people who are just living their disabled lives in the middle of their life, um, like really exists. Um, and it's, you know, when we think about solutions, like people, like people who are disabled as children continue to live, right? Um, <laughs> this is not, it, it can impact you at any point. And I feel like it's a real denial of sort of human vulnerability, fragility, 
um, that we live in like weird meat bodies um, <laughs> that that get sick and leak fluids and, you know, do all the things meat space does. Um, it's really it's really a denial of our humanity and animality um, mm-hmm. um, to 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 imagine things as we do, where we think that, A, there's like a normal and that we want to be it. Um, when, you know, there are lots of ways to be in the world that should be equally valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are lots of ways to be in the world that are equally valid. I love that. A friend of mine likes to say it's not less than, it's just different, you know? And we often frame through that ableist lens that having a disability means less than, and we can, like you said, we can overcome it and there'll be all these great stories of empowerment and inspiration, <laughs> um, but it's just different. It's just a difference. Um, But I think you really hit on something there when you said like, this is just a denial of our our humanity, our our humanness, and particularly the denial that we are vulnerable, right? We aren't these, you know, superhero entities that can take over the world. Um, But yet we are just humans, right? Trying to navigate this very human existence um, with all of our, 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 our weaknesses, um, that are inherent into being, you know, just a human being in this world. Yeah. No, it's um, and it, it, I, you know, when people are so marinated in ableism, I think it also really makes it much harder to become disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I think about a lot is like, even as I was writing this book, and I kept going, "Who is this for?" Like, it's hey, it's for everybody, but it's for everybody because I want to tell you about how to be disabled. Mm. Right. I want to make that transition easier. Um, you know, I'm lucky to have known about disability studies before I became disabled, and that's a rare experience. So what the transition meant for me was probably something really different um, mm-hmm. um, than most people. It's not that it wasn't hard. I mean, I was going through like terrible chemotherapy treatments and I was sick all the time and I was tired all the time. And, um, you know, I often say to people like being is easier than becoming. Mm-hmm. Right. Once you've made that transition, once you're adapting, once you found people will say the words like the new normal. Um, um, I don't know that I like normal enough to want a new one, <laughs> um, but um, it's, but to make things usual to you again. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like there's a space of transition if you have a newly acquired disability that is completely confounding. And I mean, I, I even think for people who grew up with disabilities who weren't necessarily exposed to disability community, there can be that time too, where you're, you're figuring out um, how, to, how to exist in the world, exist in a social world too, um, in, ways that, in ways that let you be yourself. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know that that's... Uh, that, that that makes a lot of sense, but but it is one of like the motivating factors for me in writing and, and in teaching the way I, I do. Um, you know, I want there to be space and some orientation. So when people are becoming disabled or, you know, integrating as the community some way, they have some sort of bearings, right? About how to listen to other people in the community. Like I don't just write about my disability types. Um, it's multiple, um, but, but to actually like to build disabled coalition space, um, you know, to plan futures together requires more than just one of us at a time. Um, Mm -hmm. So I hope in some ways that this book is like a roadmap for some of those things, Um, you know, and it boils down to being human, but it also, um, you know, I feel like we, we do a lot of denial of reality sometimes um in these spaces um and you know i'm guilty of it too i got an amputation and you know what i got after i got an amputation i got a temporary ada placard Mm. i got i got the one for six months i was like oh and that's it fine um yeah um i have a permanent one now um i don't know why i went through extra paperwork um you know i'm not like unguilty of of this problem and thinking things will be much better um than they than they are i now plan for a disabled future not a non-disabled one i was so used to planning for a non-disabled future that i assumed yeah i assumed a level of function (laughs) in the future six months after an amputation six months Um, I was that was a I, quick turnaround you, in your you can, mind. <laughs> you can pick six months or five years at the DMV. Oh. Okay. Um, and I was like, listen, six months. 
then, then I'll be, um, you know, and six months later I was dragging around a very heavy prosthesis on forearm mm. crutches with myself. Right. Um, it yeah. was not, um, you know, I was not healing in the way I should. Um, and I, I think it's always really important to actually plan for a disabled future. That's where I end my last chapter, right? Like we have <laughs> yeah. to plan for disabled futures everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also a lesson I have had to learn in a personal <laughs> way as well. Yeah. I mean, I love this idea of this book as a, as a roadmap, right? So folks who maybe um, who are disabled can see themselves reflected, but then also folks who aren't disabled yet, Um can maybe have this to to lean on at that point in time when they're like, wow, this is a shift in my identity, right? And that's what I was hearing as as you were talking. Um, We have this identity as an abled person who can, you know, literally walk through life, you know? Um, And then we have to wrap our our minds around like, okay, um, that's not who I am anymore, but who I am is it's just different. And now there's a different way that I interact, you know, with the world and the world is interacting with me. It's not less than, um, but it could feel that way if you bought into, again, like all of these ableist ideas of, of how you should be in this world and what it means to be able-bodied and the values that you've assigned to, to abled or disabled. So that can be, I could imagine that can be a very, very big challenge, but one that, you know, all of us, again, as you talk about in the book, we're going to, as we get older, guess what? Our bodies are just not going to do the things that they are maybe are doing now or once did. Yeah, no, and I think about this all the time with housing too. Um, you know, one of my friends had their mom and uh, their mom who was seven in her 70s moved into a three-story narrow um, apartment situation. Oh. And we were all like, well, that's not... <laughs> that, mm. um you know but, but i i you know this is very common like we build so many of our houses with like split levels yeah. and um the need for stairs i the number of like front porches just without handrails like every time i i go for a drive i'm just like Bleh. this is <laughs> um you know it would be hard for me to even get inside that house and i'm you know i'm pretty you know, I, I get around, uh, you know, in general, well, right now, as long as I'm not having a, like, flare up of hip pain, but, you know, a handrail is going to be necessary on stairs. I don't mm-hmm. know why we would build them otherwise. Like, there's so many things just in the built space that just puzzle me. If mm-hmm. we are indeed creatures who live in, in meat bodies, like, we need to be planning in different ways. Um, it, it is shocking to me, especially since we know we'll all age, um, the way in which people choose um, when they can choose where to live and just like the lack of accessible apartments, um, like a lot of these factors are, um, you know, unreasonable Mm -hmm. um, if we were planning in the ways we ought to for the bodies that we have. Yeah, if we were planning in the way you ought to with, you know, some some level of, of reality about the body. Well, and th- this <laughs> results in real danger. Like who doesn't get evacuated during natural disasters? Yeah. Right. It's people who's um, well, I mean, if we talk about fire, um, what, what immediately shuts down when um, yeah. there might be a fire is the elevator. Mm-hmm. Do you have a way to get um, your disabled people out that's not stairs? Uh, most people don't do emergency planning uh, for disabled people. Um, I think about this also with different, um, like people do, um, you know, different drills for emergencies and disabled people are told to like wait in the stairwell. That's our plan for the emergency is like disabled people wait in the stairwell till someone comes and saves you, but often no one's going to come save you. Right. Um, this has been particularly like well-recorded by um, Alice Wong at the Disability Visibility Project around the wildfires in California, but it's a conversation, you know, that's present for every natural disaster and sort of and unnatural disasters too, if we're talking about like um, different scenarios with um, uh, gun violence and things like that. Um, it's uh it's it's shocking. I I read a lot of disability narratives, so I, I especially find it very hard. A theme I see again and again in literature written by uh, people with congenital disabilities or who were disabled like early in their lives is reading about the moment they realize that no one would save them in an emergency. Like they're doing some fire drill at school, mm. 
and they're just told you're going to wait here or, you know, like, like scenarios where they're actually like told as children, wow, like this mm-hmm. is the plan, but the plan is, is essentially that they won't be saved and everyone else will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I find those parts of the different disability memoir that, that I read actually some of the hardest, like the message yeah. that we're sending to kids with disabilities because of our lack of planning for them is sometimes like, like what that means to absorb that as a child. Like I know what ableism is like as an adult. Mm-hmm. I read lots of stories from other people, but I don't think I can quite, quite comprehend, you know, that experience as a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that tension of on one hand, um, this idea that uh, we're going to save disabled people through technology and that you're going to be redeemed. But then on the other hand, you know, having these real experiences of knowing that no one is going to save you, right? That you're existing simply to make people feel good about creating a technology and doing, you know, bestowing some gift of walking or whatever ability on you. But at the heart of it, uh, people feeling, you know, like you're discardable, right? And so that goes back to that idea of, you know, being, you know, hearing these messages about worth and value, um, that we're all exposed to and that we're all either integrating into our worldview or that we're actively challenging um, and, and trying to draw attention to so that we can create different types of features and different types of communities. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's a huge tension there, right? We want to praise non-disabled people as helpers all the time, but the experience of disabled people know, like, like reflect in disabled community, we know that that help, mm-hmm. that help is about propping them up, themselves up and, and feeling good in a particular way um, where when it actually comes to thinking about like the larger context of our lives, they can't see it. Like, I don't think these people like mean to be bad, um, right. but, but the sort of like impact, um, if what you're experiencing, the infrastructure looks so different than what this technologist might be telling you um, they want to do. Um, or what usually a news story is telling you um, is coming for you um, in an excited way. But I think there's also like market related things that we know. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's really fun to play around in labs with different um, different types of technology. Like I'm not against it there. I um, I really like working with my uh, my friend, uh, Kara Shafsari in construction engineering. And she has a whole mm-hmm. bunch of little bots. Um, and we've had like disabled play groups down there um, to like talk about the technology together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very, that's very different when she invites us to play. Yeah. Right. And to talk to each other. Um, um, that's a different model than when when I'm constantly told something is going to make something so much better for me. <laughs> um, and, and those, you know, those messages aren't just like, I think it's easy to like just not turn to the text section of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, like everyone else around you is also reading these stories. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was becoming an amputee and people started sending me like stories about about prosthetics and about, um, you know, and they were trying to be really positive. It was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had cancer. It was a hard time in, in my life. Um, you know, just the medical treatment for it and just being very afraid. Um, I, you know, and I, I would go through like several more amputations before I would go through the chemo I went through before. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It was bad chemo. Yeah. Um, 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 and it was, um, you know, so people like wanted to like encourage me by by sharing these stories. And and I don't like I find them interesting as someone who works in science and technology studies. So that wasn't a problem. I found like, oh, let's look at the narratives. I'm probably reading them in a very different way. Mm-hmm. But if, um, you know, I think about, you know, what it is to be someone who probably won't be able to afford that technology or who doesn't have good right. insurance other people around them are still telling them that they should be wanting that technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have friends who have been out like in public. Um, I have a friend who um, is a leg amputee and uh, was using a wheelchair without his prosthetic limb. He had, um, he, ha- he has, his other leg is also injured, but you can't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's asked all the time, why don't you wear a prosthetic leg? Like, well, he has one, 
he mm-hmm. uses it sometimes uh but if he's like shopping at the grocery store and he has to be on his feet for a long period of time it hurts his other leg too much yeah. um right like there's a reason he's not wearing his prosthetic limb even though he has access to it which not everyone does um you know the sort of public like this so someone would come and ask you why you don't have a limb and you know sometimes they suggest that you're inappropriate for not wearing your leg mm-hmm. or your arm i i hear this with arm amputees where you know, wearing a limb makes people feel less sad for you. Mm. Um, like your encounters like can be about, oh, it's such cool tech instead of, oh, I'm so sorry. How did you lose your arm? Right. Hey. And like, it wasn't your dominant arm and like all of these questions. Um, if you wear the prosthetic arm, then they want to tell you how cool the arm is. So it's a better interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is still one like the you might not be using that prosthetic arm. That is that's for other people yeah. um, because of the constant um, um, situation. Um, but even in terms of like manufacturing, like there are so many people who don't wear hearing aids. Mm-hmm. Insurance doesn't cover hearing aids. Nope. Hearing aids are expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're asking someone like to technologize their body often for something that they might not be able to afford yeah, um, or might not want. Right. Um, so, so there, there's, there's so much built into that. And because the messaging from media has filtered into our daily lives and those of like, you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, it makes it harder to just, just be disabled and in public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I really appreciated about your book um, was really that insight, because if you haven't had to navigate, right, trying to get fitted for a prosthetic or what that process is, or have someone maybe that you're close to that you've gone through that process with, you have no clue about the cost, about the process itself. Um, I don't know, maybe people just think like, oh, you don't have a limb, so you're just going to go and, and get a new one. And just like automatically, you're going to be, again, walking or, or using a prosthetic arm or whatever it is. Um, so really understanding like what that process is, because I think for a lot of us, we may not be thinking about it or even the fact that we expect people, like you said, to use technology and integrate it into their bodies. Uh, but it's really not accessible. People don't have access uh, maybe to a doctor, so access to healthcare. And then if they do have access to a doctor, uh, maybe not the doctor they need that has experience they need, or again, here we go, money because capitalism Um, and all of this is very expensive. Yeah. I mean, so disabled people are often themselves painted as being more expensive. Yes. Some of our tech is expensive, but when it comes to things like accommodations, I mean, surprisingly, like the large majority of workplace and um, school accommodations cost under $500 a year. Mm. Right. Um, and, and if you're talking about someone who's like working full time, I mean, there are sometimes really simple switch outs. So, oh, you have migraines. Let's get you different, different color. Like, let's turn off these fluorescent lights yeah. um, and get you better lighting. Um, um, this is not a hard and it's a one time cost. Mm-hmm. Um, um, most most like things to to better integrate disabled people actually are not as expensive as people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this sort of social pressure to get these high-tech devices that they're gonna solve the problem and then we won't need accommodations, mm-hmm. right? I think there's a certain like line of thought about accommodations as well here. So I use workplace accommodations. Lots of my students do too. They're mm-hmm. using, I guess, student accommodations, which is a whole different office, um, of course. Uh-huh. It's really hard for graduate students who also teach because they have to go through, but they have to do the process twice and it's completely different paperwork. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> but to, like sometimes the accommodations are so small. Like it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I come in slightly later. Yeah. Like, and I leave, I can leave early if, you know, I feel a migraine coming on or if I, I, I feel um, not well or if mm-hmm. I'm fatigued. Like, so a lot of them are about time and about mm-hmm. how we set up space. Um, you know, m- people who might need more time on a test or a room with like less focus. The thing is to get accommodations, even we have to prove that we're disabled. Yes. And we have to go through these different offices. We have to give a doctor, like we have to give a doctor the paperwork to fill out. We have to have a doctor to fill out this paperwork. The doctor has to believe us too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they might fill it out in ways that disclose too much information to our employer. For instance, the uh, accommodations paperwork I had to fill out wanted me to list every medication I'm on. 
do they need to know about the hormones I take because my ovaries no longer work thanks to chemotherapy? That's probably not relevant to right. my workplace experience um, is me taking um, hormones, right? And it's mm-hmm. in the form of birth control pills, but that ship has long <laughs> sailed um, um, thanks to chemotherapy. Um, it is it is like degrading, right? So someone mm-hmm. else gets to be the expert about you and passes it right. off to someone who's an expert about how to accommodate you when the disabled person themselves is living the experience and often not consulted. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they're in the iterative loop, like offering suggestions, oftentimes they're not listened to as much as like a disability service professional, right? Right. Someone who gets to be an expert about us um, or about accommodation in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is demor like you've gone through all of this work and what do you get? Uh, Slightly longer on a test. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like the state, like what we get is, oh, we can have equal, like, oh, the classroom will be someplace that I can physically get to. Right. That That's the mm-hmm. accommodation. And they, they make you go through this giant process for it. It just speaks to the ways in which disabled people, I mean, this is ableism more generally, are constantly undermined. Mm-hmm. Like they're always looking for a non-disabled expert about us. It can even be a caretaker. Right. It's not uncommon if you use a wheelchair for whoever is standing next to you to be asked questions about what you might want Mm. when you're right there. Right. Um, Right. It's just like, oh, disabled person, someone else probably knows better. Right. The sort of default social expectation there is is all wacky Um, Mm. and the sort of deference to whoever looks uh, non-disabled around you. And of course we usually travel in packs. So it doesn't mean that they're non-disabled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it means, um, it means that the, the seeing an apparent disability like makes people turn away in a particular way. And that's true, you know, in workplace and school and public life. I mean, to show up to some sorts of like public meetings, if you need an accommodation, you have to ask for it 10 to 14 days ahead of time, because mm-hmm. we all know what we're doing 10 to 14 days ahead of time. <laughs> and we know what will be well enough to attend 10 to 14 days ahead of time um, um, so that they can, you know, get captioning or get an interpreter or move the whole space to someplace that is, you know, barrier free or, mm-hmm. or, you know, more accessible in terms of infrastructure. Um, you know, it, so many things are just built in ways that require extra work of disabled people. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily have more time and often we have more fatigue. It, yeah. It's like the whole structure of, of so many things in our lives. Um, so it's not just techno-ableism, but ableism more generally that sort of controls um, so much of what we can do and when we're believed even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that point about like being believed or not being believed. Right. Um, and, for me, I always think about our expertise as, you know, expertise in ourselves, right? We don't need someone else to be an expert in our lived experience, but often it's seen as less valid. We need someone else to say it for us, um, particularly, you know, if you're a part of a, any sort of marginalized or quote unquote, not normal uh, group, then we're always looking for that external expert, quote unquote, Um, when you're talking about students, you know, I was really thinking about uh, the whole accommodations piece, right? Again, because I'm in the classroom and, you know, who has the the ability or the means to have the doctor who can fill out the paperwork, who believes them, who can then get it routed, you know, through the university system, um, which is is not very streamlined at times. Uh, And then the type of accommodations, which when I think about it, aren't those just things that we should be offering all students anyway. <laughs> I don't think it should be a special accommodation for a lot of those things. It should just be the way we're, we're interacting with our students and, and the way we're setting up our classrooms. Um, and I think that speaks to, again, ableism and how it is threaded throughout our society. Um, and so things that really should just be part of our, our, our practice are now, they have to be accommodations. Yeah, I think about, so this is sometimes called like universal design for learning, like you're going to go ahead and build it in a way that uh, more people can partake, you know, with or without accommodations that it's already set up in a disability forward way. Um, And I set up my class this way, it means like I have to do, like I get the list of accommodations and it's like, oh, most of these don't apply because it's already set up. Like I share all mm-hmm. my notes. They're in the Google Drive for our class. Enjoy your notes. Yeah. Um, right. This is, you know, it's not... Um, 
it's not super hard to do a lot of these things if you build them in first, right? Mm -hmm. I think about like how I'm going to structure assignments in ways that, you know, um, can adequately test things, but also, um, you know, not require us to have to go through a whole bunch of accommodations processes because so many people are, um, you know, like not going to get the accommodations they actually need and deserve mm -hmm. and, and are their legal right um, just because of how we've rigged the system against disabled people in so many ways. Um, you know, I think about this also. So I have a chapter in this book on neurodiversity mm -hmm. um, and I think about like how, how do you properly, I, I, mean, I, I end up quoting like a lot of autistic people and people with ADHD in the chapter, just because those, those aren't my experiences, mm -hmm. uh, but I want to be able to talk and to learn within community. And I thought it was really important to, to address that piece of it as someone who is neurodivergent because I have chemo brain. And so time works a little differently for me. And I always pay attention to what people with ADHD are like, what are their, what are they doing? And mm -hmm. then I try to just copy that um, as someone with chemo brain, like, oh, all like, thank you, Liz Spingola. She's the reason I have all these alarms on my phone. She, I was explaining when I showed up to a meeting late and she was like, oh no, here, give me your phone. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you could, I'm going to set an alarm. You're going to, you're going to be fine. Um, this is, um, you know, this, these are things we share in community about adapting. I was mm -hmm. a couple years in by the time um, Liz showed me this, this life hack. So I learn from people in, um, in um, sort of the neurodiversity movement um, every day uh, to exchange, uh, exchange information that, mm -hmm. that helps for a wide variety of things. It's not that we have to be and I think this is also where like technological approaches fail us. We don't all have to have the same disability to use the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Some people think, oh, I know what your disability is. Here's what your accommodations are. That's not how the accommodations process should be at all. Cause it's not that all disabilities affect us in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. I know lots of amputees, you know, the things we might have issues with are kind of different, right? Some people have significant issues with like phantom pain and that is incredibly debilitating. Um, you know, some people are like prosthetic fit. Some people are, you know, maintenance issues. Some of them, like, it's not that we're all even struggling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we might be good um, and have knowledge to help other people be good to too. Um, um, there, there's, there's just, uh, there's a lot of joy for me in cross disability work. Mm -hmm. um, because of that sort of inventive learning, oh, that worked for you. Let me try that. Um, and it's not, and it, it, it doesn't have to be someone with the same disability you have as, you know, people mm -hmm. can reframe ways of thinking about things and adapting. It can be really useful. Um, and just like little, little tweaks, um, that don't necessarily, they're not life-changing in the way that technologies are advertised to be. Um, but they are more often, right? Mm -hmm. It was life-changing to start setting all of these alarms. Um, you know, I've, I, I'm not late. I've, I show <laughs> up to my classes. Um, um, I'm not constantly worried that I'm going to be late all the time. And that is, you know, sort of in your mental task list, really important. Um, so I talk a little bit about the history of, um, history of autism specifically, because mm -hmm. I think, you know, even outside the realm of physical disability, we see lots of news about disability, but autism makes the news a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and especially like different types of therapy for autism are, are like really focused on normalization and mm -hmm. not on making autistic people more comfortable in their bodies and in the world. And I think that's a real shame and that's techno-ableism at work too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated that chapter and uh, very heartbreaking too at times because um, I'm not very familiar with with autism and, and some of the the practices that are used to make autistic folks quote unquote normal. Um, and so I think it's really important for folks to, to read that and to understand what's happening um, in ways that we can be more um, inclusive to folks and not have these demands on what is quote unquote normal, right? But allow people to be in their bodies and express themselves. Um, so I thought that was really important. Um, Ashley, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for writing this book. Um, like you said, a roadmap for folks. And it's definitely been a roadmap for me and something that I'm going to recommend folks to read because it is, it's, I think it's just so important and written in a way where easy to understand and where you can pick it up or pick up a chapter here and there um, and, and learn alongside you. So thank you so much. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again to Dr. Ashley Shu. Her book is Against Techno-Ableism, Rethinking Who Needs Improvement. I cannot tell you how excited I was to see this book. I know that people have a lot of questions about ability, about disability, about how we can show up in this world and understand the world that we live in better and the folks around us better, but also thinking about our own experiences with disability as well. And so I think this book does such an amazing job of really challenging maybe some of the the beliefs or biases that we have, but also, as Ashley mentioned, um, being a roadmap for disability that we might personally experience at some point in our lives as well. So it was such a pleasure to talk to Ashley today. I just want to close with this reminder. Each and every day, you get to decide. Yes, you you get to decide what type of day it's going to be and how you're going to show up in this world. Over time, it's those daily choices that create your life. What type of life are you creating? Well, I hope that you're creating this type of life where you will join me again next week here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. And remember, subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you never miss a conversation. And also, it makes it super easy for you to share this conversation with a friend. I know that you learned so much today. I mean, I did. And maybe there's a piece of our conversation today that you want to re-listen to or that you think might be helpful to someone that you know. So be sure to share this conversation with someone and tell them to join us back here next week on WYXR. This is Let's Grab Coffee and I'm Sanaa.